morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Obadiah this morning. And do not be ashamed to use the table, table of contents to get there. Um, Obadiah is one of those books of the Bible that's only one chapter. So it's not even chapter one, it's just verses, um, kind of like Jude. So we're going to be looking at all 21 verses this morning um, in the prophecy of Obadiah. But I want to tell you, like this morning, I'm a mixture of exhaustion and excitement. And the reason is because um, some of you right now, your kids are at camp. We have kids camp going on right now. I am so thankful for Faith Scott and her faithful ministry here at First Baptist, um, her love for our children. And so um, at camp, I was there on Friday and Saturday with our kids and when my kids, some of my kids are in the camp. And, and it's been a wonderful weekend of looking at God's word. But specifically, we've been looking at the gospel with our children. We've been doing the three circles and taking the, the, each circle and explaining brokenness and then looking at God's design. And then this morning, um, I'm so thankful for Frank Catalanata. He's going to be teaching the kids specifically that circle where we write the word Jesus um, and understand exactly what it is that God has done. But I'm telling you right now, our kids are asking incredible questions. Um, just, just, it just shows that they're thinking, that they are just really pondering things, that there's new questions that their generation faces, um, that they're having to think through that maybe a former generation didn't have to think about as much. And so all these things are happening. So there's this focus on the gospel. I'm excited this morning also because we have missionaries from Central Asia here, missionaries that I've been praying for for the last couple of years um, that I'm so excited with. Actually, kind of a funny story is um, this brother came to Lake Charles after her Hurricane Laura to do disaster relief. He and his family had come back because of COVID. And then after Hurricane Laura hit our region, he came all the way from North Carolina to come down and to do disaster relief. And so he was there. We were doing disaster relief. And I went to strategize with he and one of his strategic partners that had come down to do disaster relief as well. And after I left their house, okay, where we had been, his brother-in-law and everything, on my way home, I hit a cow. I should have put the picture up on the screen, but I can't make this up. It was a very dark night and the cow was solid black on a blacktop road and I saw its cousin before I saw it okay and um, and needless to say my father-in-law's truck was totaled and so I'm there in the middle of the the night it's about 11 o'clock at night I've totaled my father-in-law's truck and I'm like who do I call so I called them so they come to my rescue in the middle of the night and come out there and and spend time with me we're getting eaten alive by mosquitoes I mean it was horrific out there but but listen that bonds you with a brother. Well, when you hit a cow and he comes to your rescue, uh, there, there's not a brother like that one. And so I'm so grateful for that, but I'm so excited for us as a church because we continue to have these missionaries coming and we're getting to experience relationship with them and of getting to, to allow their influence in our life. Because as we see them living on mission, it reminds us that we are to be living on mission and that there's no greater encouragement for them than to see us doing the very same thing that they're giving their lives to. And so I'm excited about that influence and I'm excited about this day. But you know, does it make any sense? This fixation, this focus on the gospel, does it make any sense that we're this way? Does it make any sense that we're saying that it's the most important thing for our children to understand and to grasp? Does it make any sense that in every one of our Bible study classes, we've integrated this sharing of the gospel, this practicing sharing the three circles 
every single week, week in, week, week out, us training ourselves to do this. Does that make any sense? And then when you look at a family, a beautiful family, four precious children going to live in a difficult place to give their life to making the gospel known, does that make any sense? Does any of this make any sense? I want to invite you to hold your place at Obadiah. And just like it makes good sense when you get something from Ikea that comes in a million pieces to want to look at a finished picture first to, number one, give you hope (laughs) that this actually does all come together. And then secondly, to give you orientation that where does this piece go to then look at the finished picture where it's all heading to say, oh, that, that's why this piece makes sense. To turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter two, to look at the finished picture of where this is all heading and why it makes any sense for us to be a gospel proclaiming people why it makes any sense to focus on the gospel with our children and with our adults, and why it makes any sense that a family would give their lives to living among the nations to make the gospel known. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Philippians chapter two, while you hold your place at Obadiah, as we consider the end at the beginning of this message. Beginning in chapter two, verse five. Hear the word of the Lord. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who in existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse nine, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you give us this portrait of an exalted Christ to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that will bring you glory, Father. So thank you for that portrait of what will be that gives us hope and gives us orientation today as we live as gospel people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You see, the only reason it makes any sense that we are doing what we're doing 
of why this family is doing what they're doing, of why a seminary here in our city, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, is equipping people how to go out and make disciples of all nations, how to lead churches to make disciples of all nations, to be biblically faithful, to be, to be expositors of God's word, and to be gospel-proclaiming people and to lead others to do that. The only reason it makes any sense is because where everything is ultimately heading is to this one climactic moment when every knee, notice it doesn't say only the knees of Christians and every tongue will confess. It doesn't say just the tongues of Christians. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all heading there. But some will find themselves on a knee conceding. Jesus is king. While others are confessing, Jesus is king. But all will say it together. Some will have to concede in that moment that they were wrong in this life. Some will have to concede that they lived in opposition to the king all their life. But all will ultimately confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the only reason it makes any sense that we should labor in this life that people come to a place of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord so that one day they will not have to bow their knees in submission and concession that Jesus Christ is Lord, only then to be sent away for all of eternity from his presence, rather than being ushered in for all of eternity into his kingdom. That's why it makes sense. We see the end from the beginning. And right now we live in this moment where it makes great sense for us to give our lives to this purpose of making disciples of all nations. And we see it not only in the New Testament, we see it in the Old Testament, to which I invite you to turn to Obadiah. And today, as we look at the prophecy of Obadiah, we see that it is a message for the nations. In particular, this message takes aim at a nation called Edom, the Edomites. And the reason that these things are taking place is because of the sins of these people. And that God is aware of exactly what's been going on among the nations. There's a long sordid history between the Israelites, the people of God, and the Edomites, who also kind of have some common ancestry. You see, they, they, they've been kind of traveling a, a parallel line of existence, except these people have done nothing but been a, be a thorn in the side, if you will, to the people of God. They've been antagonistic, they've opposed, and then in moments of downfall, they said good riddance and even took advantage of them in that moment. And so we come to Obadiah and there's a little bit of uncertainty on exactly when it's written. Chances are it was written somewhere in the fourth or fifth century BC after the exile, after a lot of bad things have happened to the people of God, after a lot of sin has been dealt with among the people of God and they have now been exiled to Assyria and to Babylon and they're, they're going through all of these things and they're wondering how long, Lord, how long till you vindicate 
your people? How long, Lord, until you punish your enemies? How long, Lord, will we remain in exile? How long, Lord, until you send the promised one, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who will lead us and be with us forever? How long, Lord? They're wondering, how long? How long will it be? Ever find yourself asking those questions? How long, Lord? How long will it be? How long will we continue to wait for the coming of the Messiah? How long will we have to wait while it seems like the evil prosper, while those who are righteous are persecuted? How long, Lord? How long? And what this prophecy communicates to us is that there is a day coming. There's a day coming. In the New Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it was called the day of the Lord. That there's a day coming when finally all that is wrong will be set right. But I want you to see how it's described here and how it was a warning then 2,500 years ago and how it is a timely warning today to us and to all people. That it's good, this message is good because it orients us and it wakes us up. And so first of all, what we see is this, a day is coming, number one, when God will bring to an end the reign of his enemies. See it beginning in verse one, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations and you will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your home on the heights who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. If thieves came to you, if moradars by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged. Esau being a synonym for Edom. Has his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Taman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by the slaughter. God is saying a day is coming when God will bring to an end the reign of his enemies. But notice the way that he says it, of his enemies. He says, it will not matter their geographical advantage. You see, the Edomites lived in these, these difficult to get to places. They, they knew that they weren't gonna have an enemy sneak up behind them because the terrain behind them was so difficult that nobody could really get up there. Or if they did, you would see them starting to trickle in and would be able to take care of business. And then because of their height, they could look down and see anybody approaching. So on either side, they're looking and they're like, we're safe. It's kind of like when you play a game, like capture the flag. Anybody ever played that growing up? 
You, you wanted to get a good spot for your flag. You wanted to position your people so that you could see people coming, but that also you wouldn't be taken advantage of by somebody sneaking up behind you and capturing your flag. These people were like, we're the best at capture the flag. Nobody can get us. And God says, it doesn't matter your perch. It doesn't matter your security that you think you've got. And we need to be warned of that even today, that, that we don't become like the Edomites in our security and thinking we're okay. We're okay. And if you're here today and you think, well, my situation is different with the Lord, consider that no matter their geographical advantage, number two, no matter their political height, Notice he keeps going on. He says, everyone who has a treaty with you, verse 7, will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. He says, all of these people that you're depending on, all of these other nations that you think, well, if anything does go bad, all I have to do is just kind of tap the floor Tap the mat, and then I'm going to get tagged by another country. They're going to come in with their army. He says, you think you've got this alliance. The moment you think that they're with you, they are going to be against you. Because the, the hearts of the kings are in God's hands. He controls them. He, he leads them wherever they go. That's one of the great realities that we can lean into and rest in even in times of a political difficulty and of turmoil not only locally but globally when we look at all these things is to know we serve a sovereign God who controls all things who's over the king's heart the king's not even in charge of his own heart God has control ultimate control even over that and he says these alliances that you're depending on they will not matter in that day that day of my vengeance he says, no matter their geographical advantage, no matter their political height, no matter their wisdom and might, he keeps going on and he says, I will eliminate the wise ones of Edom, those who understand from the hill country of Esau. Your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by the slaughter. Looking at their military might, looking at just how wise their people were, their strategists, God says that in that day, none of those things will matter. You see, it's, it's always been the case that people have looked upon Christians and they, and they look at them and they say, not as intellectually elite, not as, as politically aligned, not as, 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 as much of an advantage as it is a liability when they've looked at Christians, but that only makes sense in this moment where maneuvering is taking place, where people are trying to get an advantage or get, get one over on someone. And God is saying there is a day that is coming when anyone who has made alignments and who has given their security to something else other than Jesus Christ, that will be a day of regret. Because there is a day that is coming when only one king will remain and every other king will will bow to that king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So God says, there's a day coming when I will bring to an end the reign of all of my enemies. Isn't it good to know that there is a day still coming when he will bring to an end the reign of his enemies? 
There are places right now, just as we've discussed, where not only on a local level, but even from the top order of the government in countries where putting to death Christians is a priority. That if word gets out about someone making disciples, of sharing the faith, of proselytizing, that there should be exacted upon them the, the harshest sentence and judgment. These are, are wicked governments. These are wicked rulers. And the believers there are crying out to the Lord, how long, Lord? How long? And God is saying to our brothers and sisters in these difficult, difficult circumstances, there is a day coming. There's a day coming, my child, when I will bring to an end the reign of my enemies. Secondly, he says there's a day coming when God will bring additional charges against his enemies for crimes committed against his people. This touches on exactly what we just said, but it makes sense, doesn't it? That God would give a special interest, a special concern for the treatment of his children. You see, it's one thing for me as a father to have to correct one of my children. That when they've done something wrong, that they're doing the wrong thing, maybe they're showing disrespect to another adult or whatever. And for me to have to get down with, with one of my children and say, this is not okay. Get down with them, pull them in close and to correct them. We say, yes, sir. We don't just say yeah to him. Yes, sir. No, sir. These sort of like instructions and I get down. And then if I get up and my son walks away and one of you says, yeah, that's right, boy. You and I will be having words in that next moment. Is my son. I, I, don't need, I don't need you to, to, to lean into him like that. I just talked to him. And the people of Edom were watching as God the Father was disciplining his children, doing exactly what he said he would do, that if they persisted in their sin, if they worshiped other gods, if all of these things happened, then they would be pulled out of the land. And so on their way out, on their way out, the Edomites are saying, that's right, boy. And they're spitting in their face and they're kicking them. They're snatching things out of their hands. They're mistreating them. And then they're going into their city and they're robbing their homes and taking everything they own and all of this stuff. And God the Father, God the Father says to Edom, I have words with you. I need to speak to you in this moment. And the word that he speaks is a word in verse beginning in verse 10 where he says this, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now what's that stemming back to? What's that word Esau that we just saw? There were two brothers, two brothers born to Isaac and Rebekah. Two brothers one Jacob, one Esau, and from those two brothers came Israel and the Edomites. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Israel, Jacob's name becoming Israel, and then Esau would go on and he would give up the covenantal blessing. He would, he would be this one that went the other way. And then a long history of tension would exist between his descendants and between the descendants of Jacob. And so we come to this moment where there's a correction taking place in God's word where he says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, on the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered the, his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. 
Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. The father is dealing with these people who in a moment of disciplining his own children have decided to make the most of that moment, to taunt them and to make their misery even more severe. But to give you a portrait, I wanna invite you to hold your place in Obadiah and turn over to Revelation chapter six to see again how precious are the people of God to the Father as he is dealing with his own children and hearing their cries. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 9, we see this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the, whole, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told, to rest a little while longer until the number would be complete of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Now, why do I bring attention to that passage, to this scene in heaven? Because it clearly puts on display this reality that there is a special attention given by God himself to his people, his people who have endured persecution who have gone through greatest difficulty, that there is going to be a reckoning one day for what has been done to his children. That's an important point for the nations to pay attention to as they, can, as they continue to mistreat and to punish those who belong to Christ, is that there will be a special additional charge pressed against them in that day because of the crimes that they've done to God's people. But here's the reality. It will be just. God will exact justice in that moment. It won't be him playing favorites over others. It will be a day of justice because the third thing we see is the day is coming when as you have done, it shall be done to you. Pressing on in the prophecy, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. That's justice. God is essentially saying, you judged, so you shall be judged. You took, so it shall be taken. You consumed, so you shall be consumed. You gave, it shall be given. You surrendered, you shall be saved. You see, everyone wants justice until you have done what is unjust. Then you want mercy. But God is making clear that this day will be a day too late to seek the mercy and the forgiveness of God. This final day will be a day of judgment. And that day was coming for Edom. And that day is coming for us all. When as you have done, it shall be done to you. So think about the, the logic of that reality. That if in this life, what you wanted most and what you gave your life to most was Jesus 
that, that what, you, what you gave everything to, what you laid your life on the altar, your family, your children, your money, your assets, your time, everything, you gave it squarely and fully to Jesus. And it makes sense that when this life is over, what you will receive is Jesus. That's who you'll receive and everything that comes with the king. His kingdom, the comfort, the blessing, the provision, the peace, the joy, the light. If in this life you gave everything to Jesus, then at the end of this life, on that day of judgment, you get Jesus. But, but if in this life you reject Jesus, you push him away, you keep him away, then it makes sense that at the end of this life, you don't get Jesus. And when you push away Jesus and you step into the life after this life and you don't get Jesus, you don't get the kingdom. You don't get the provision. You don't get the light. You don't get the comfort. You get everything opposite of that. Because in this life, the one thing that mattered most, Jesus, was the one thing that you pushed away that you rejected. And so therefore, for all of eternity, you'll get exactly what you wanted, a life without Jesus. But I promise you, that's not the life, that's not the eternity that you want. That's not the eternity that anyone wants, but that's the eternity that millions and billions are hurling toward apart from Christ. And why it makes sense that we would bring this good news of the gospel before that final day to all nations. Because as God's word says, for the day of the Lord is near against all nations. In other words, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we see a day is coming when God will bring to an end the reign of his enemies. There is a day coming when God will bring additional charges against his enemies for crimes committed against his people. A day is coming when as you have done, it shall be done to you. And there is a day coming when every knee shall bow. Verse 19, people from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from Judea foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria while Benjamin possesses Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. There is a day coming that God's word said 2,500 years ago and God's word continues to proclaim. When we turn back over to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we get this additional portrait of where all things are headed. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the almighty who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great. 
and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. You see, the message is consistent from beginning to end. And the end makes sense of this moment in which we find ourselves, that one day it's all heading to the ultimate reign of King Jesus. And so therefore, the only thing that makes sense in this life is to orient everything about your life to the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And then beyond that, it only makes sense that you would want everyone. I mean, how much do you have to hate a person to not want their life to be ready for that moment, to be ready for that reality? that one day King Jesus will rule and reign and they are going to bow their knee and they are either going to have to concede in that moment, Jesus Christ is Lord, or they are going to join the confession of heaven, Jesus Christ is Lord, and they are going to be gathered around with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, worshiping the lamb that was slain and the one who is seated on the throne. And they will ascribe to him worth and glory and honor for all of eternity because One day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do you go? How do you go from being an enemy of God, like the Edomites, one who right now is maybe secure in your political alliances, Maybe your position, your thinking, your wisdom, your assets, your financial security, where you live, even in the city of New Orleans. To go from having that sort of a confidence in in you and of the things of this world to having a confidence only in Christ. How do you go from being one whom Jesus might actually say, you have done these things against my people to being one of Jesus's people? one of his followers? How do you go from being in this place where you're in a kingdom really of darkness and what you're going to get for all of eternity if you remain in this kingdom of darkness saying, I don't want the kingdom of light, I don't want Jesus, is you're going to get an eternity without Jesus, a kingdom of eternal suffering, a kingdom of eternal darkness. How do you go from this kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of light? How do you come to this place where your knee bows now? And your tongue confesses now that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to know that where you come is to the message of the gospel. That's why we are focusing this weekend with our children on the gospel. You see, the reality is, and I've just described it in great detail, the Edomites put it on display, is that we live in a broken world and we ourselves, every one of us, are broken people. But that was not God's design. When God created everything, including people, he looked at it all and said, it is very good. The relationship that we have with him, the relationship we have with one another, very good. But sin entered into the world. It entered in through the very first two people. God saying, do not eat of this. And they said, we think we will eat of this. And they did it. And every one of us ever since then have been born into a broken, sinful world, being born as broken, sinful people who sin against God. And as much as we try to clean up our broken world and get back to God, we can't. So God did something. And we've just proclaimed it from Philippians. I want you to 
to hear it from God's word in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as of most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them who are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul puts on display this reality of the gospel. You see, he, he says it a little bit more concisely in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he reminds the church why they take the bread and the cup. And so I want to invite you to take this that you should have received on your way in. And if you're a believer here today and you need one of these, just lift your hand and someone in the back will bring one to you. But open the bread. And then take this small piece of bread, and I want you to hear the, the words of the Lord. Beginning in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take in remembrance of Christ. And then I want you to open the cup part. And it says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take in remembrance of Christ. What we've just done is proclaim the death of Christ. You see, that's how we are proclaiming we have gone from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. It's not because of anything that we do. It's because of what Christ did for us. Christ gave his body. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. What a king. What a king who in order to establish his kingdom would come all the way down and live among us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How amazing is this king? This king who would live a perfect life and at the end of it, die on a cross for your sins and mine, his body given, his blood shed in order to pay the price for the wages of sin is death. So Jesus died, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so he gives it freely. Jesus was buried just as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. But on the third day, God showed us all that our King is alive. He raised him up. He was seen by many witnesses. We just read, ascended into heaven with the promise that one day, the day, that day, 
that has been being proclaimed to the Edomites, that day that is proclaimed in Revelation, that day for which we long, which we say with the, with the writer of Revelation, John, come Lord Jesus, that day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how will you be ready for that day? By today, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the only way you'll be ready for that day to make the confession is to confess him today. So I wanna invite you to stand in this moment and you may be here today and for the very first time in your life, you are ready to give your life fully to King Jesus. I wanna invite you to come forward at this time that I might spend a moment praying with you and encouraging you in your moment of surrender. But let's all worship through song in this moment of prayer.